an honor to be here with all of you doing this great practice, this great process, learning how to control, manage our minds, stimulate our hearts. It's beautiful. So uh, my cohorts have given you great teachings in the last few days. And I'm going to try to add some pieces to the puzzle. And uh, I'll begin with this little piece I wrote. Recently, I heard someone on the radio explaining the new crime of identity theft. And I immediately thought, yes, rob me, please. Take my identity and leave the cash. <laughs> I can regard my entire Buddhist path as a matter of shifting identities. And it all started with me trying to run away from myself, from the sentimental histrionic drama of me-ness. The Buddha says that the false conceit of I or self is the bane of our existence. And I was indeed relieved when I began to see through the various membranes of personal identity. But what really surprised and delighted me is what I saw on the other side. It turns out I am not who I thought I was. I'm much, much more than that. For the most part, we each live in our own story, and it's pretty much the only one we tell. And that's too bad because while each of us is lost in our private drama, we don't notice that we are taking part in grand epics and heroic noble projects. For instance, even while reading email or shopping for socks, we continue to operate as breathing cells in the great body of life on earth, part of a fascinating multi-billion year experiment in biology and consciousness. Of course, in your own story, you are always the star, but in the big story of life on earth, you're just a bit player, just a walk-on part. But that is the point. You can disappear into this grand perspective, like walking into a Chinese landscape painting and getting swallowed up by the deep gorges of bamboo forest and the eternal sky. You can move out of the personal into increasingly large circles of inclusion and identity until finally you can point in any direction and say, along with the great mystics, Tatvam Asi, I am that. I am that. So, this question, who am I, is central to the Buddha's teaching and to the teaching of many esoteric religious traditions. I sometimes uh, say that all of, all of the Dharma can be summarized in a knock-knock joke. <laughs> the disciples come to the master and they say, and the master answers with the number one spiritual question. Who's there? <laughs> now, if you don't get the joke, you have to be reborn over and over again until, until you do get it. 
The Buddha said, true happiness can only be found by eliminating the false conceit of I or self. Unfortunately, we're all born with a case of mistaken identity. We believe that we are in here and the world is out there. Rarely acknowledging, feeling that the world is actually flowing through us and that the world is in here just as much as it's out there. Einstein, uh, Nikki shared, shared with us some Einstein quotes yesterday. I really think you stole that one from me, from my papers. There you are. Yeah. Uh, Einstein says, our task must be to free ourselves from a prison, a prison, uh, an optical delusion of consciousness, experiencing our thoughts and feelings as something separate from the rest. Our task must be to free ourselves from this prison by widening our circle of love and compassion to embrace all living creatures and the whole of nature in its beauty. Albert Einstein. If he said it, it's got to be true, you know. It just. <laughs> so how do we how do we break this break down the walls and uh, join the world, break out of this mistaken identity? The Buddha showed us the path. Develop mindfulness. This non-reactive, non-judgmental, present moment awareness. I think of it as the opposable thumb of consciousness, <laughs> able to reach out and take a hold of reality in a whole different way. The Buddha wants us to be a scientist of the self. His instructions are to go inside and explore the body, the breath, the emotions, the feelings, and see how they all work together to create this being that you call self, yourself. It's, I think maybe uh, Rick said that the Buddha was the first scientist. Did you say that? I'll say it if you won't. <laughs> the Buddha was the first scientist in that he said, investigate yourself and be as objective as possible with yourself as the main subject, which is very difficult to do. Uh, but the Buddha figured it out and he leaves us that legacy that all of us can do that. A few years ago, I read that the elusive top quark had finally been found. The scientists said that this quark has no mass and no dimensions, which would indicate to me that it doesn't really exist. But the scientists seem to have found it anyway. I find myself nodding in my head in agreement when I come across stories like this, even though many of the explanations make no sense to me at all. 
It seems as though the scientists now hold the same position as the ancient shamans who disappeared into the wilderness for a few years and then came back and told the tribe, listen up, I just talked to a bush or ate a bush and I talked to a rock and this is what reality is like, okay? Modern scientists now hold the shaman's role and whom else are you going to believe? Sure, Mr. Scientist, the world is made out of quarks that nobody has ever seen. I was just starting to understand how matter works when the physicists began talking about antimatter. They, they say the universe is filled with antimatter, and in fact, there is just a little more matter in the universe than antimatter, which allows the universe to exist in the first place. Because when a particle of matter meets a particle of antimatter, they annihilate each other. I think the discovery of antimatter is proof uh, that whoever created the universe was somewhat ambivalent. <laughs> you know, <laughs> the particle of matter, oh, it's gonna be so much trouble, particle of antimatter. But the, dis the discovery of antimatter raises some important new questions for us humans. Now we not only have to ask what's the matter, we have to ask what's the antimatter. <laughs> and most important, most important is does it antimatter? <laughs> At least they found the Higgs boson, which gives everything substance. Nobody has ever seen this boson. Nobody knows exactly how it works. Without the Higgs, there would be no mass and therefore no universe. That's why it's called the God particle. So let us pray. Oh, dear Higgs. Blessed Higgs. Thank you for our mass. Oh, wonderful Higgs. Thank you for allowing me to be silly. Uh, So the Buddha tells us to develop mindfulness and explore our body. And uh, for me, I think uh, I th I'm going to go back a little bit and talk a little bit about my first meditation retreat, which took place in Bodh Gaya, India in 1970. You remember the 1900s, some of you? <laughs> anyway, it was uh, a gathering at Bodh Gaya where uh, the Buddha was supposedly enlightened. And uh, there were a bunch of young Westerners. There was a whole wave of young Westerners, late 60s, early 70s, who uh, went to Asia to study these ancient wisdom traditions uh, at the source. Uh, I was, I was very excited because I had been reading Alan Watts and hearing uh, lectures by, uh, by uh, what's his name? <laughs> Ram Das. We, we called him Baba Ram Das back then. But uh, I thought I would go to Asia, go to India in particular, find a teacher, and uh, he would teach me how to merge with the the big oneness. And then my painful self-consciousness would disappear. The bliss would kick in. 
I thought it might take a couple months. Uh, I, <laughs> who knew that it was what it is, which is a lifelong project. But uh, Goenka taught this body scan where you, the mind moves down, up and down uh, the body. And after several years of doing that practice pretty much exclusively, um, I began to realize that what my meditation practice had done was to bring myself into my body uh, and out of my mind. It, my, my sense of identity dropped from the story of my life to the fact of my life. Suddenly my identity was one of the live ones, a living, pulsing, breathing being. And the personality, you know, had a little to do, to do with it, but not much. But that's been one of the great gifts of uh, meditation practice in my life is to really bring me into the mystery, which is really going on within. And when we, when the the personal uh, the personality is uh, just chattering on about you know this and that and the other thing, there is this other truth about who we are that really connects us to all the rest of the life of this planet. It's inclusive. The path of meditation reminds us that we are alive by leading us from our heads into our bodies. We come down from the story of our life to the fact of our life. My teacher told me to sweep my body with awareness and slowly but surely I became familiar with my nose and my toes and what poet Mary Oliver calls the world of lime and appetite, the oceanic fluids. This bag of bones and seawater came alive and started to take over from my ego as the foundation of my identity. You might say I was born again as an animal. I had joined a grand and venerable sangha. To witness, witness myself in the story of evolution, I feel a surge of compassion for the struggles of all life. Let's face it, the basic rules on this planet are hard. But the phase, may all beings be happy, has a deeper ring to it when I regard myself as in the same world as those who dress in feathers and fur and scales and leaves and bark. Now when I sit in meditation, I can feel my aliveness, my mammalian condition, my species self. I also sense my practice as part of a group effort by human beings to awaken to a new kind of freedom and sanity. Meditation has been called an evolutionary sport. In the light of that big perspective, I thank you for being on my side, part of this exciting project. But that first retreat was a real shock. I had just come from working at a rock and roll radio station as a news commentator. And uh, I sat down and was given the instructions to you know, pay attention to my breath and then my sensations and keep the mind moving. And, uh, and music started to play. And it, I thought I was going crazy. It was constant. I could not turn it off. Don't worry, I won't give you any ear, ear bugs, but uh, 
um, I, it was crazy. I, I could, sometimes something would trigger uh, a song that I was familiar with. And my mind would track through the song. And if it was on an album side I was familiar with, my mind would sometimes track through the album side. Several times, turn the album over. <laughs> and this is against my will. I mean, I, I was a pretty good DJ. This, whoever was programming it was not that good. <laughs> but it was, a, it was such a shock that first, that first time and several of the first times to see that I wasn't in control of, the, of this mind and uh, that there were all these other forces that were conspiring to uh, direct my life and... Uh, and lead me wherever they wanted to lead me, you know? And I guess you could say there was so, certainly some animal in, in that force that, that directed me and guided me. And not in a bad sense, but, uh, you know, if, we, if I talk in laudatory terms about being, feeling related to the animal, the rest of the animal kingdom, I've got to take with, the, with me the... Uh, somewhat negative parts of that. So I think the Buddha is a naturalist. You know, that's, that's his, his designated uh, field. Uh, he, he sort of goes into the wilderness of ourselves and we can do that same thing. Go into the wilderness of yourself and take notes you know, what do you find in there? Maybe a little bear scat, maybe a, you know, a, a note, note to your mother. There's all this stuff in there and you're just, you're just marking, marking it down. And, you know, you might submit it somewhere, have an office. I thought at one point that I could become my own therapist. When I first started meditating, I thought, you know, I'll just sit there and say, uh-huh, what else? And uh, you know, it'll just, it won't cost me a hundred dollars uh, um, uh, an hour. And I have this fantasy about the scientists uh, tweaking our genes so that we are born mindful. I mean, maybe we're all taking an evolutionary leap, learning how to override the mammalian instincts and past psychological conditioning. I don't know who wrote this. I found it and I liked it. Maybe our collective sitting practices will eventually correct mistakes of evolution. Perhaps the efforts of all the world's Buddhists will somehow manage to tweak the genome and create beings who are by nature mindful who are born with full-on, selfless, moment-to-moment loving-kindness and compassion. Unfortunately, evolutionary science would remind us that desire and anxiety are important survival functions, and humans who practice diminish those functions are placing themselves at risk. Buddhists may well, well be on the way to extinction. So, you might as well enjoy the Dharma here and now. 
And be sure to give a deep bow to evolution for enriching your practice. <laughs> I think it's interesting to realize that it didn't always feel this way, the way we feel, uh, to be a person. The clothing of self wasn't always this tight. If you would have uh, gone up to a desert nomad or a surf in, in Europe uh, any time in the last uh, half century, or I'm sorry, last 500 years, and asked them, what do you want to do with your life? They wouldn't know what you're talking about. You know, they're born into a setting and into a... Uh, uh, work life and uh, family life, and it's not a question, and it's not, I, I don't know, for most of them, I think it wasn't too much of a problem. Rollo May, the famous psychologist last century, he said, Americans cling to the myth of individualism as though it were the only normal way to live, unaware that it was unknown in the Middle Ages and would have been considered psychotic in classical Greece. Evidence from some early Greek uh, literature indicates that they thought all the voices in their heads were the voices of the gods. We would consider that a bit schizophrenic, something wrong with that person. But of course, we think all the voices in the, our heads are our own which is its own kind of madness. But uh, all life has a sense of self, but we seem to have come to an uncomfortable extreme at this moment here in the land of personalized license plates. We've lost what uh, anthropologists call participation mystique. We have little connection to other stories, other, uh, a tribe, a people, community, nature, the cosmos. We live in what has been called a time of amythia, in the culture of narcissism. The Buddhist path, as you probably have experienced to some degree, can help us heal this separation by examining the self. The Buddha says, ask this question, this construction, self, what is its cause, its ancestry, its origin? We're not necessarily looking for answers when we raise those quest that question. We're raising doubt about we've, what we've come to believe, that we own it all. We're directing it all. It happens or organically, I think. Uh, I first used breath, as many do, as a concentration object, simple, neutral, brings me into the moment. But over the years, it's taught me much more. First of all, I realized that I don't breathe. Breath breathes me, as I'm sure some of you might have experienced. Uh, you know, at the end of the next, couple breaths, take a couple breaths at the end of the exhale, let go of, of any mindfulness, any kind of concentration or focus. The next inhale comes as a surprise, right? A kind of gift. You aren't breathing, breath is breathing you. 
And if you try to stop breathing, you will faint and fall over and your breath will continue. <laughs> it's like the breath got inside of you and wants you to live. Breathing, a sign of life. Similar revelations. I'll get there in a second. Similar revelations can happen through mindfulness of the body. As I said, my first teacher was Goenka, and we did the body scan, and we would be sitting in front of him and doing that scan and the body just sort of is, has dissolved. There's no hardness to it. There's no uh, edges to it. It's like any place you put your attention was just a massive uh, process going on of tingling. But uh, after a while, I started to wonder, you know, where did this body come from? I didn't create it. No catalog of choices was offered. Would you like eyes in the front and the back? <laughs> Would you like to swim, fly, or walk as your primary means of locomotion? Would you like your sex drive and hunger automatic or manually operated? <laughs> The Buddha said, this body is not mine or anyone else's. It has arisen due to causes and conditions. For now, it should be felt. Let me say that one more time. This body is not mine or anyone else's. It has arisen due to causes and conditions. For now, it should be felt. Richard Dawkins, the famous biologist, uh, he said, if you had a picture of your great-grandfather -grand 100 million great-grandfathers ago, and we all have a, a grandfather back that far. Everybody's got to have had a grandfather that far back, every one of you. Um, you had a photo of your grandfather 100 million uh, grandfathers ago, you would have a photo of a fish. <laughs> we are... <laughs> this is fun, isn't it?
So who are you? That's uh, a question that you can occasionally arouse in your mind as you feel your body moving through space, as you look at an animal or a bird or a bug and you see the same, you see the same floor plan as you do in humans. You, there's a head on one end where the food goes in and a tailpipe where the waste comes out and, and the same uh, positions in the body, in this elongated body for where the limbs reach out from, the arms, the legs. Nature finds a good, you know, a, a good model and doesn't let it go, you know, just keeps reworking it over and over again. Nikki, you talked about the, uh, all the bacteria and single-celled beings all over us, 90% of your body weight. Uh, I have something about that here. Molecular biologists say there are at least 1,000 different species of life inside your large intestine alone. There are more living beings inside your mouth right now than all the humans that have ever lived on planet Earth. What if they all got together and revolted? <laughs> and, and they said, don't take as many showers as you do. Every time you take a shower, millions of us die. <laughs> Lynn Margulis, one of the great biologists of the 20th century, said, our concept of individual is arbitrary. We all are walking ecosystems. Okay, I'm going to read you one more piece here. Oh yes, profound shift in my years of over the years of my meditation, profound shift of uh, relationship with my thinking mind. We're still friends. We live together, but we're no longer so codependent. In fact, I probably, one of the main uh, stimulators of me going to, to try meditation uh, was when I saw that my mind has a thinking problem. Had to have some thoughts as soon as I wake up. <laughs> I had some, had some thoughts in the middle of the afternoon, had to have a thought before I went to sleep at night. I needed an intervention. But before meditation, I was completely identified with my thoughts. I like Descartes, I, you know, I think, therefore I am. I think Descartes should have said, I breathe, therefore I am. Because you can breathe without thinking, but you can't think without breathing. But it's a little ironic, I spent the first half of my life learning how to think, and now I'm spending the second half of my life learning how to ignore my thinking. What was I thinking? 
But thoughts, we must remember, thoughts are not bad. We want to simply expose the mind to itself. You give up thinking at your own risk. Okay. Just 10,000 years ago, our new human brain really kicked in. And our really great grandparents invented agriculture and started living in cities. And since then, our species has completely transformed the life of this planet. We can now fly around the earth and out into space. We can see to the edges of the universe and deep inside of matter. We know a whole lot about physics, chemistry, biology, and how things work in nature. In just the last couple hundred years, we've almost doubled the average human lifespan. So now you get twice as long to be yourself. Just a couple of generations ago, most of our ancestors were peasants. And now most of us absorb many volumes worth of information in a lifetime and operate fairly complicated machinery. Basically, it's a whole new world out there. And considering all that, it seems that we're doing a pretty good job of being human. According to the scientists, we're still using brains that were developed over millions of years for members of small tribes of hunter-gatherers. That would explain our addiction to shopping. <laughs> it may also explain our territorial ways and our current confusion. Inside the story of evolution, however, we can find reason for optimism, at least in regard to life itself. We see how tough and resilient life has been, surviving comet crashes and continents bumping into each other, ice ages, choking methane atmospheres, plagues. We find hope in the fact that we seem to be acquiring a new kind of consciousness just now, a new level of self-awareness. Just 2,500 years ago, we had the axial age, yes, bringing us Lao Tzu, Gautama, Buddha, Socrates, Many more revolutionary thinkers can be considered our contemporaries. Darwin, Freud, Jung, Einstein, Hubble. We're just now getting a whole new picture of who we are in the scheme of things. And the more we learn about ourselves in the universe, the more wondrous the story becomes. Consider that less than 100 years ago, we knew of one galaxy in the universe. The latest estimate is that there are 100 to 200 billion galaxies containing 30 to 50 billion trillion suns. Who are we now in that vastness? What does that mean to our own sense of meaning? Considering the creativity and complexity of Earth life, it is hard not to believe that there is some guide or intelligence or even purpose behind it all or within it all, something yet to be known. As the great biologist E.O. Wilson writes, to imagine that a human being could emerge by random chance in the universe is like trying to imagine a hurricane blowing through a junkyard and creating a 747. So the mystery remains. After all our searching, 
We haven't found any definitive answers to the big questions. Everything just keeps evolving and revolving and refusing to reveal an absolute truth or solid reality. But in my case, at least, the searching has brought me closer to the mystery and has filled me with awe and wonder. And that, I believe, is a gift that is worth as much as any definitive answers. So whenever I get discouraged or cynical about life and its struggles, I try to remember that it has taken the universe 13.7 billion years to make me. 13.7 billion years to make me. What a project. There's some, there's some cause for self-esteem, wouldn't you think? So we're not perfect yet, but there's time and there's hope. So I ask you for the sake of our baby species and our species babies, do what you can to keep this little biosphere project going, if for no other reason than to just see what will happen. Let's continue this experiment in life and consciousness for a couple billion more years. Learn to see yourself as part of it all and then learn how to love yourself and then you will love it all. Bow deeply to the mystery and the beauty inside and all around. Thank you. It's so nice to hear laughter and, and laugh, and it's, it's all hard enough. Let's sit for a minute or two. Thirteen point seven billion years to make you. We have a walking period. Yeah. Gee, I'm. It's funny that you asked. <laughs> it's called "You Are Not Your Fault." I happen to write, have written it. Yes. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.